drum, a fiddle, and a banjo, they kind of get up and go music. Oh. <laughs> Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Aarons. You may remember way back when, before COVID, hard to imagine, I know. In our second episode, we talked a little bit about music in the mountains. We specifically played some tracks from the album, which this podcast is named after, that the Foxfire students produced on the Foxfire record label, which is pretty cool. If you haven't listened to that, definitely go check that out. Um, But we talked a little bit about different music styles, so folk music, where some of the folk ballad traditions came from, where some of the instruments that you find in Appalachia came from, but it was kind of a broad sweep. So this month, I wanted to take a deep dive into one particular topic, and that's banjos, specifically banjo making. So today I'm gonna feature clips from a few interviews that were conducted in 1973 and 1974 in preparation for a whole magazine issue that the Foxfire students dedicated to instrument makers in Appalachia. So at the time that the students were conducting these interviews, the people they were talking to had learned how to make instruments from their parents who often learned from their parents. And these were traditions that were passed down pretty much in their local area, um, whether it was between family members or relatives, neighbors. So the styles of instruments that they're making are very like regionally specific. When we look at mountain banjos, they're not what we think of as a banjo today. You probably think of maybe Steve Martin or Earl Scruggs playing those beautiful big banjos, lots of metal pieces, there's a fifth string, there's frets. None of that was present on a mountain banjo. A mountain banjo looks very similar to its African ancestor. So the banjo originated in West Africa And we can trace this back to slaves who were forced to come over from Africa to the Caribbean and the coastal south and then migrating up into the mountains and the Mississippi River Valley. There are several variations on African gourd instruments with skin heads, and these are typically what resemble a banjo. But the most recent research shows that the aconting, the way that it's both made and played, seem to be the closest relative to what became the banjo in the United States. A lot of early accounts from the 17 into the early 1800s refer to this African instrument as a banjar. And there are lots of accounts of enslaved peoples playing and performing with banjos for their own communities, but also for white communities too. And this actually gave way to the minstrel tradition. And the minstrel tradition is really what bridges the gap between the banjo as an African instrument to becoming a white instrument. Minstrel shows, which were created to mock um, black people, normalized and popularized the use of a banjo style instrument. And this really caused the banjo to take hold more across the country rather than just these more Southern areas. Now in the mountains, you know, it's very possible that the banjo had become a part of 
Appalachian culture before the minstrel shows, but urban areas, it would have been directly connected to those minstrel shows. But when you listen to these interviews, you'll notice that not a single one of them mentions black banjo players. So these banjo makers came from a culture that already had banjos as part of their communities. And when you listen to their music, you'll notice that it has some bluegrassy twang to it, but it's certainly not quite like modern bluegrass. And many of these people would have been playing traditional ballads or you know, other folk songs that eventually would become part of bluegrass and country music. But the people um, interviewed at the time most likely would not have identified themselves as, as bluegrass musicians. Now, in terms of playing style, this changed significantly with the emergence of Earl Scruggs, who's very well known. So prior to Earl Scruggs, most people played the banjo in a style known as claw hammer. And this involves using three fingers to pick as well as um, more of a drone string with your thumb. And I'll link a video on our website of two banjo players playing together and showing the difference between Clawhammer and Scrug style. And I'll make sure to link that over on our blog. It's kind of difficult to explain, especially since I'm not a banjo player, um, but it, it makes more sense when you can see them actually um, demonstrating what each of their fingers is doing on the strings. The banjos in the mountains were made out of really simple materials. As with most things made in Appalachia, they made it from what they could find around them. And this was simple pieces of wood and animal skins. You'll hear a really great story from Stanley Hicks, who talks about how he got his skins for his drum heads on his banjos. A lot of people swore up and down that cat skin was the best to use. Um, others would use groundhog skins. Um, anything's kind of small-ish like that, that would be easy to tan for a banjo head and the right size. What I love about these interviews though, is you'll notice that most of the banjo makers can't resist playing while they're talking to the students. So you'll hear a lot of instrumental coming in throughout the different interviews. Um, and I just want you to close your eyes and imagine them sitting there holding these banjos while the students have recorders and just thinking and playing at the same time, like it's almost an extension of their thoughts. And it kind of gives it um, a great atmosphere as we immerse ourselves in these interviews. So the first interview we're gonna feature is with David Pickett, who is based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He talks a lot about the history of the banjo and keeps referencing Seeger and a book by Seeger. This is Pete Seeger that he's talking about, um, really well-known folk musician in the 60s and 70s. And Interestingly enough, Pete Seeger and his wife Toshi were actually huge Foxfire supporters. And um, we have a letter from them donating photographic paper and film to the students um, as they were starting out so that they could continue to capture the images that they did during those in early interviews before they had funding and support. So just a really great little piece of the story there. But David goes on to talk about how to make a banjo and one of the things that's interesting is he explains the different sounds you get from an open and closed banjo. So some of the mountain banjos, the backs would actually be open. And he talks about how where you hold the banjo affects the sound and what scenarios that would be used for, whether, you know, what would be better for singing with it, what would be better for playing with it. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting approach on it. 
of the slaves, when they came over, they had an instrument they called a banjar, which primarily was a three-string instrument. And then there was the four-string, and the five-string banjo, Sweeney, is the man that they credit with adding the fifth string to the banjo. Was he from the mountains? Was he, or was uh, he a, a Easterner? Or? I believe he was from Georgia. I wouldn't have laughed. Really? If I had Seeger's book, I'd get a lot of information from that. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Earl Scruggs in the five-string banjo gives a little history about the banjo. But I got more enjoyment out of this book of Seeger's than any I've seen because all of his stuff is traditional and Seeger teaches you to play it traditional style, folk style playing. He's the only yeah. man that I know of that plays an extra long five-string banjo like it should be played. It actually uh, came from, from this. Of course, the banjo had a real bad reputation. Uh, in Sigurd's book, he talks about uh, around the turn of the century. The banjo got a real bad name because you found it in moonshiners camps and outlaws and mainly drifters is the only one that fooled with the banjo and there was some pastor around the turn of the century somewhere in the mountains the Seeger explains all this that uh, one sure way to give your son a ticket to hell was give him a five-string banjo because the people that associated with the banjo were a rowdy group but it's around I believe he says 1841 when Sweeney came up put the fifth string on the banjo which the five string banjo is the only truly american string instrument that was developed in this country also it's the only instrument that you can play every chord on that you can play on the piano i didn't know that that's right that's you, you, you can't do it on a guitar but you can't on a five string banjo why i don't know that much about music to explain it right Right, it was a little more fancy. I've seen them that looked like a tube before, you know, just went right. out with a box stuck on it and a head tacked on it. Uh, they used a lot of cat skin yeah. for the head. They take a cat skin, take a green cat skin, skin the cat out, get the hair off of it, and stretch it over while it's green. When it dried, of course, it would be tight. Right. It didn't even didn't even sound like a banjo. Right. It's, it's just, I don't know, it kills a banjo sound. Kills it, yeah. To get your sound, you're going to have to go to a skin. Now, a good friend of mine down in St. Andrews, Dr. Charles Joyner, uh, has a little fretless banjo made with just a square wooden box instead of the skin head. And it doesn't, doesn't has some banjo sound, but very little. It's kind of a cross between a banjo and a guitar, really. And it's kind of, to me, dead. It doesn't have a ring that the banjo has. But uh, you just don't get the sound out of it. Yeah. You can't get the sound out of something like this. That you can with a bigger surface. Now on this banjo, I'm not going to make it as on, on my fretless banjo. I won't make it as big as as this right here. I think I'm going to go to about ten and a half inch head uh -huh. instead of the eleven inch head. And you, I'll have to use the skin. Why? Well, because of the rim construction. Uh, you can't very well use a molded plastic head that's made to fit on the outside of it. Gotcha. Right. And if you're going to build a traditional banjo, you ought to keep it as much traditional. Right. Get, uh, use your own imagination and come up with ideas that's actually improvements, yet retaining the original idea. You just right. modify it slightly. 
this, this rim here is about three inches deep. Right. You gotta be like cured in the Preferably you bend it green and let it dry. Or you could use dried hickory and soak it or steam it. Right. To bend it. And just pull it around the cylinder. Of course make your lap joint. And pull it around the cylinder and glue it and pack it. And after it dries, it will retain this. You wouldn't even have to glue it while it's like this. Just pull it so it would stay basically in this shape, then pull it together. Now, a banjo like this right here, I could build this with no problem at all. Yeah. Most of the banjos I built have been out of walnut and curly maple. Uh, it's hard. It doesn't bow too readily. It's, it's pretty rigid. The walnut is a little easier to bend. I found the maple. It's not quite as rigid. And uh, on this banjo here, it's laminated. The neck is made in in three pieces. Three, made out of three quarter inch boards and glued together. Glued together, yeah. And, yeah, I can uh, see that. Now. Yeah, you can see see your part lines in right here, here, here. Two sides glued on. Of course, this tail piece is all part of this center piece here. Now on some of your later banjos, it actually wasn't sealed, but it had a back on it. Mm. And around here, it was open. So the, the actually the volume of it hit this back and came out around the outside of the rim. Just increased volume, that's all. So this banjo right here doesn't have it. It's more of a, a fretted folk style banjo. You hold it against your body. Turn it around. See, so you sound travel. Your body actually softens, mellows the tone a little bit. So with this banjo, you can play it with other instruments, and it's not really loud enough or have enough volume. Because of it being a folk style banjo, this banjo is more suited to playing and singing with the banjo. When bluegrass. You don't have too much of this. Right. Here you are with the group. You're with yeah. a group. Right. And you can sit around and strum this banjo and sing with it or frail it. You'd be surprised at the amount of tools that uh, they had. What we have today is just a uh, improvement over the tools that they had then. Of course, there's a lot more handwork involved in it then. Well, this banjo here has been played quite a bit. You can see that Cripple Creek's been played on this banjo a lot. You can see the slide up to the fifth peg. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Right here. Yeah. On the third string. You can look at the banjo and see about mostly what was played on it. Oh. Uh, Reuben down the road on this. Cripple Creek's been played a little on it, but not as much as on this other banjo. Oh. Next up, we've got Dave Sturgill from Piney Creek, North Carolina. 
Um, he takes us through his journey coming back to the mountains and why he started making instruments. This is another common way that people get started building instruments and that's just they wanted to play one and <laughs> they didn't have money to buy it. So they just figured it out on their own. And, and as you can see in some of the images and descriptions that we'll be sharing here and on our blog, the mountain banjos are pretty simple in shape. And so once you could figure out the shape, you could start to perfect the tonalization. Um, and so he kind of walks us through that. One of the interesting things that really stands out about his interview is in addition to talking about cat skin, he also says that cat fish skin could be used for a drum head and I honestly don't know if he's pulling their leg or not. I have never heard of any other reference to catfish skin for a banjo. So if you know anything about this, I'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm inclined to think that he's pulling their leg at this time, but if you've got more information about this, please email us because I'm, I'm very curious. <laughs> Out of thin plywood, and I put that in the creek. Let's stay there until the 
all came apart to get the veneer, the thin wood, and I wrapped that around a five-gallon can, put rubber bands around. That's the way I built the hood. These these old instruments I've always been fascinated by. Of course, I make modern instruments too. And one of the models of banjos, which well, I have one on the lathe over there, which I'm turning out a tone ring for. It's the more modern bluegrass banjo, but the old ones like this that our ancestors played on. Or this is we're all of us were very much interested in preserving these, really, not yeah. letting this just die out completely. And, and since there is a revival and interest in the banjo now, uh, we well, got really the idea is, of making them available in this kit form to other people that wanted to build one themselves and didn't have all the facilities to do it with. Yeah. Say, we looked at a lot of them, and there were a lot of different styles of structure. But now what you see here, most of them in this part of the country, this is the way they were made. Like these two, uh, that's two originals there. And most of them were made on that same general style with a thin inner hook, and it set in a groove in the top and the back. Now some of the oldest ones that were put together entirely with wooden pegs, they used no screws in them at all. And they used all kinds of skins in them, but the favorite was the cat skin or catfish. They get a catfish out of the river big enough. The yeah. advantage of the catfish skin was it was not subject to so much change from the effects of humidity. That was one of their favorites, if they could get a cat a catfish's skin. But next was a old tomcat. Well, we found the wood was critical to the tone of them, of producing this old-time tone that these instruments have. Uh, they used, uh, again, every kind of wood you can think of, uh -huh. poplar. Well, the best ones that we found was yellow poplar. Huh. Well, they used that for the top and the back. It's a strong wood, and it's a very resilient wood. It'll vibrate. If it has a weakness, it'll crack awfully easy, too. Mm -hmm. and this one I told you about that we restored was made of yellow poplar, and uh -huh. it was cracked into 20 different pieces. Wow. We had to completely reassemble it, but it had a tone so much better than anything else. And the necks were almost exclusively oak, and they're uh -huh. all the old ones I've seen. Red oak uh -huh. is one of the favorite woods to use. It's strong and it's light. Different. We've made them thinner than this, we've made them thicker than this, and approximately a half inch. Seems to be about right on it. Uh -huh. And even the size of the head. Now, the one I have upstairs that has an 8 inch head in it is not as good a tone as the smaller ones with a 6 inch. How are we doing? Even that's, that's critical. And uh, the first one of the kits, let me show them how this hook goes on the inside to tighten the head. Got one that's got a. Right here, here, you got one hanging up there. Yeah, here. Now, we make a little a little wooden hook, see, that goes inside of this head. Uh huh. And that drops down here. It uh -huh. just drops in there. And then we use uh, some little pieces, five of them, that go around here with a screw. Uh huh. So you tighten this screw, that puts pressure on this hook to tighten the head. Gotcha. Well, right. we got the bright idea we, we could improve on one of them if we made this little hook here out of metal and use little metal brackets. Uh huh. To press this head down and get windy. Right. Adding that much metal to it. Uh, Changed the tone of it entirely. So we huh. went back to wood again. We went back to using the, all the, metal out of that using the wood hook. So the huh. only metal in it is this little metal that's in this rim here. Right. Uh, these things, the reason to say for using them is they're easily replaceable and they can always get a replacement for it. Where if we put them in the traditional, yeah. traditional manner, they'd have a hard job finding a replacement head if they ever needed. Right. And this is adjustable, see? You can tighten the screws up around there. And you just take the back off and tighten yeah. the screws. Well, some of them design them so they don't even have to take the back off. They yeah. can go right through the hole. This interview is going to be pretty short. It's with Leonard Glenn, who is extremely well known as a musician and instrument maker. And there's actually other interviews with different people who reference Leonard Glenn as an instrument maker. Uh, he talks a little bit about the different types of wood for banjos, um, but then he just gets into playing and it's hard not to sit there and listen to him. So I hope you enjoy um, this little clip from Leonard Glenn. Well, 
What type of wood do you like to use best for the neck? Don't rub it over Fritz. Well, look. They don't there for too much. What, cherry, I make them out of cherry, and cherry makes them just a little swollen. So, yeah, when you got it, but I ain't got no cherry, and I got a little swollen, not too much of it. Make them out of it. So that's one of our neck stuff, I guess. Now I'm going to sort of get caught up in my orders on the banjo and think I'll turn it over from the boy and let him make the rest of them. He don't like to make them. He don't like to make them and I don't like to make them either. Is that right? I made so many of them, I get tired of them. Yeah. And finally, we're going to end with Stanley Hicks from Vilas, North Carolina. Stanley and his family were extremely well known around Beach Mountain for their abilities as musicians, instrument makers, and storytellers. His dad was um, a renowned instrument maker. His mother was a wonderful fiddle and dulcimer player. And his cousin was famous for being a storyteller, but Stanley definitely holds his, his own. Um, Stanley is actually who we featured in our first two episodes. He has quite a bit of content on the It Still Lives record. He, he shares some really great folk stories and riddles. Um, but then he also plays a lot of folk songs on that record. But here we're going to focus again to his work as an instrument maker. And so the interview starts in 1974. Um, again, you'll notice he's playing as he's trying to talk. And then we're actually going to switch to him working on an instrument because he tells this really great story that relates to what he's doing with his instrument. And he's actually at this time working on a dulcimer that has frets um, but I just love this interview because it really knits together the way music and storytelling and tasks come together in a way that's just so Appalachian. 
And then after that, pulled in a clip from a 1978 interview. The audio is a little bit better. We've got a student interviewer involved. Um, so we'll just use that as a follow-up to learn more about how instruments were made. He took glass and wood raspers and drawing knives. I still use a lot of glass and drawing knives myself. Uh -huh. Quite a bit. And uh, scrape them down, you know, with smooth nails. Right. And uh, he saw him out down the keyhole, so I did one sorry. But uh, I got me a saber saw, you know, much easier. Uh -huh. I helped my daddy when he was a kid. Uh -huh. But I've been doing it about 20 years. I ain't worked a job in about six years. Been kidding as much as bad, and I do this for a hobby, and then it helps me out, you know, in the farm. My wife works every other day, top. Uh huh. And you say when, you, when your father was making banjos, as far as you know, he didn't have a pattern to go No, no, he, just... he cut his own pattern out, just more and bang. Oh, yeah. He cut and made his own pattern. Uh -huh. See, anybody make one like that, just scrap them up a piece, you know, and make them one. Sure. Now, he made it that boy of mine. He got down there and wanted dad's and working on his plane on it. And dad didn't want to mess with it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Made him want to have a cake. How did he, on this one right here, how did he set these pieces together? I don't. These are put together. This piece, this piece, and this one goes together with this screw. Well, this one's put to bed. Uh huh. From inside. Uh huh. This one holds this piece on. I see. And then there's another screw, about four screws. Mm -hmm. And this one holds it here. And then it's. Goes on. I see. So you screw the first two layers together, yeah. and then screw the, yeah. that, that top yeah. layer and the third yeah. together, yeah. and then this screw on. This is the where you put the hide in, you see. Uh huh. Push your hide in, and he sewed his around the wire. I sewed mine around the wire. The hide is sewed around the wire. That's Dad for me. I just don't uh -huh. like you doing it. He's he's the one that done it that way. I don't know, and so I do them that way myself. All of mine's done that way. Uh huh. And uh, all that I make anymore, I swear I do it. Hmm. But I guess the way he put his in it would be easier, I don't know. But this is where I do mine. Uh-huh. And the hide is sewed around this with a thread. Right there, I use that fishing. Well, he used to take squirrel hides back then, but we got the fishing line that we use now. Uh-huh. And then the hide goes on this. Well, I take it and I take a uh, oh, yeah. pole. Uh-huh. And run it over the pole and hammer it around. And then when I get it hammered the way I want it, then I fit it over these bands right here. Uh -huh. I just cut the hide a little bit bigger than this, you know, so I can just put it here. And then I just start. Cat hide makes the best hide you can get. Now, here's Dad made all of his tools. He made all of his tools. My daddy made this. He made all of his tools. See. Uh, and uh, that's, I'll show you over here some of his stuff. And all of you. My daddy made his stuff he worked with. He used he made some out of chestnut, but they've awful easy but mm. yeah. you have to be awful careful. Uh, that stuff. Mm. Big difference in the sound of the wood. The harder wood you've got, the better sound you've got. I had the best cat dog that could be got. And I'd turn him loose and have my club tied right here. And that dog would go to the house now. He was I had him trained. He'd come to this house and take this cat away from it and take it into the woods and tree it. And I'd go climb a tree and motion about two or three times so it, and if it jumped, he'd catch it and hold it if it got down. Huh. He wouldn't chew one up. I'm trained he wouldn't chew it. <laughs> he hurt for me. And then I'd get down, sit and knock it, pull him out. I mean, I'll probably get down and finish it off. Yeah, and skin it out right yeah, there. Yeah, take it, yeah. Dad skin him. I'd help him. I'd take yeah. him in, take him in the sack, and slip around through the woods so nobody would see him. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't tell you how many I have. Like Danny didn't care, you know. There's too many cats in here, and they didn't care much. Yeah. But they just didn't want to see you come into the house. I wouldn't get the last cat a man had. That's what I like to was, you know, one time to know man has 
mine sometimes for the cat hygiene in it. If it don't suit me, the cat gets messing around. I get ill with it. I place hide on the banjo, you know. Huh. But if it don't fit, fit a good cat, I don't do that. But it ain't many good cats. You don't find many good. They've always been to something. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed these interview clips and that you learned a little bit more about banjos and their complex history in America. I certainly encourage you to do more research onto the evolution of the banjo from its African origins. You can find resources over on our blog. That's www.foxfire.org. If you scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll see a series of blog posts. It'll be the one on the far left. Or you can just go to the top menu and select the podcast page. That'll take you to all of our podcast episodes. So when you're done listening to this one, you can check out any that you might have missed. Um, we'll also be linking that video that I mentioned earlier. Um, again, just as well as some other articles and videos related to the topic of banjos. I'll also have pictures there. Most of them come from Stanley Hicks, but we'll be able to feature some of these other folks who are interviewed as well. And you'll get to see what those banjos looked like, what those instrument makers did, um, how they did it, stuff like that. And definitely join us again next month for another great podcast. And we are always looking to hear from you all, especially if you know more about banjos in Appalachia. I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can send us an email. That's it still lives at foxfire.org. You can comment on our blog page, send us a message on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram. We are also trying to get our Twitter back off the ground. All of those handles are just foxfire.org. Again, love to hear from you. Love to hear what you want to see in upcoming episodes and um, what you're enjoying about the podcast. As always, please leave us a review, share us with a friend. All of that helps support our mission and bring us to new audience members. If you are looking towards the holidays and want to get geared up and ready early, consider a Foxfire membership. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We bring this podcast to you free of charge because it connects directly with our mission of preserving and promoting Southern Appalachian history and culture. If you love Foxfire as much as we do, please consider supporting us again through a membership, a donation, purchasing a Foxfire book. All of that goes directly back to helping us make all of these programs possible. We thank you so much for listening and can't wait to talk to you next time. Y'all take care. Bye.